Welcome to the Ornithopter Flight Academy. I'm your host, Brendan, joined as always by Josh. Josh, how are we doing this week? Busy. Christmas season is crazy. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, obviously on the home front, it gets real busy. You guys get pretty busy at the store. I mean, soccer moms coming in buying Pokemon cards for their kids and stuff? or Oh, yeah. Decent amount of in-store traffic coming in there. And online sales are, are nutty as people grab up last-minute gifts for friends and loves uh friends and loved ones yeah every like phone conversation we've had this week has started with what are you doing josh listing so many effing cards yep that's <laughs> uh that's a daily routine come in uh ship out all the stuff that sold and then list a bunch more to sell oh yeah you gotta be getting pretty good at that so it's good though business is good I'm sure jeff's happy Always. Uh, small side note, if you guys want to, you know, purchase cards from Josh, you can go to War Games North. They're on TCG, TCG Player. You can search by seller. They have all the cards listed there. Uh, Josh works there, and our buddy Jeff owns it. Jeff's had it for like 15 years. He's the reason why our Magic community kind of exists uh, in this town, and the reason I started playing Magic. So show him some support. Not paid or anything, but yeah. I've been, uh, you play any magic or you just been working? No, I've been working a lot. Uh, I did, uh, two commander games. That's the only magic I played last week. I have not had a whole lot of time to play. Did you play any pioneer, pioneer, supreme chaos draft awfulness? No, I've done enough drafts like that to know that I don't find them particularly enjoyable. Yeah. You watched the one I did. It wasn't fun. It didn't Uh, sound fun. For you guys that don't know, the way the draft works is you get a random 17 packs. Um, you open a pack, you pick two cards, and then you open the next pack and pick two cards, and they're all from different sets. And in theory, it sounds really cool, and if it was kind of like a sealed, I think I liked it more, maybe? I don't know. A, you don't know, because it's everything in Pioneer, which is 36 blocks, or sets, excuse me, 36 sets. So you don't know what you're going to get. And there's a lot of them. Like, let's say you open up a really cool, like, energy card from, what's it, what was that, Kaladesh? The head energy? Yeah, Kaladesh was an energy set. Yeah. Well, the chances of you getting something that synergizes with it's really low. So you just get these beat down decks or these control decks, the people that just draft all the removal and counter spells and two win conditions. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it doesn't make for super exciting gameplay. It wasn't as fun as I was hoping, but I tried it. I gave it the good old college try. Let's see. I played Eternal Weekend. Eternal Weekend was this weekend. How'd you do? I did <laughs> not great. Not great. I did not bad, though. Like, I did not 02 or 03 drop. I went 5 and 4. Um, and I took 73rd out of 282 people. Top 64 got paid. I missed it on breakers. Uh, I think up to 58th place was five and four. Um, It's magic. It happens. I had a good time. I changed last minute, decided to play Hogek because it's a more consistent deck that I'm more comfortable with. And yeah, vintage is a lot of fun. I learned a lot from it. I have gotten a lot better at losing magic by playing vintage. And I mean that in a very serious way. Because Vintage is a very high-variance format, in my opinion. 
you just to lose to your opponent drawing more restricted cards than you. That's just part of that game. And learning how to cope with that in a tournament setting and not lose your cool because your opponent top decked better than you. Because a lot of situations, I know for you guys that don't play vintage, the game either goes person player A does something crazy and wins on the spot and is able to protect whatever crazy powerful thing they're trying to do, or player B does something crazy very quickly and wins. But a lot of times what happens is player A and player B, like player A tries to do something crazy, player B stops them, player B tries to do something crazy, player A stops them, and you end up in top deck mode. And then when you're playing a deck full of one ofs, it's not very consistent to draw. And you're not you play a lot of one of because cards don't get banned in vintage, they get restricted. So I learned how to take my losses in a tournament setting, not just give up and quit. Um, played as well as I could, played all my games out. I didn't randomly just concede when I was behind. Um, so yeah, I am not happy with my result, but I am happy with everything I learned over the last two months of pretty much exclusively playing Vintage. Um, you get, everyone check it out. If you have a Magic Online account, it's actually really cheap. It's cheaper than playing Modern, which is weird to say out loud, but it is. So my birthday is a month from today, the day of recording, and there is an RCQ that I'm going to try to go play in its Pioneer. So we're going to switch things up, and I'm just going to play Pioneer probably for the next month. So, yeah. Um, a little more on Eternal Weekend. Obviously, we had the one in the U.S. and uh, the paper event as well. And in Legacy, there's been a lot of talk. I didn't get to watch a lot of coverage. But, Josh, you familiar with the Mono White initiative deck that's been showing up? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people, a lot of things on Twitter about that being a touch too good. And I played against it in Vintage. What's crazy is, like, the Vintage list and the Legacy list are pretty close. And the it put up good results in Vintage. And in Paper... Uh, they had, I was talking to someone on Magic Online I played against. I apologize, I don't remember who. But they were saying they played Eternal Weekend in paper. And they had, I don't remember how many, 84 people, 100 some people. 100 some people, I think. And I, I messaged him, like, oh, wow, that's a lot of power. And he goes, oh, a lot of people weren't playing with power. They were just playing with, like, the Mono White Initiative deck. Because it stopped, it's that good. I don't know if we want to delve into this too much, but when mechanics are made for four-player formats and then they get to be played in two-player formats, um, sometimes they're busted. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, it's part of the downside of cards being made for Commander, to, to be perfectly honest. Like you said, when you make cards for a four-player format, you're going to have blowback that happens in the two-player format if those cards are legal. It happened with um, cards that came out of the Commander set, such as, um, oh, what's that stupid Merfolk with protection from everything? Protection from a player. Um, I cannot remember the name of it. I can't either. It's one blue-blue for a three-one. I do yeah. know that. Um, it happened with that card. That card... Uh, 
was uh, a monster in the older formats for quite some time. Uh, it's going to happen again anytime you screw up just a little bit. Yeah, true name nemesis, by the way, is the name true, of it. Yeah, right, right. True name nemesis. Um, I, I just don't know how you can get around that. So you either need to make those cards not legal in the uh, older formats, which is, of course, going to drastically affect their value and their uh, desirability, because why are you buying cards if you're only buying them for commander and you can't use them anywhere else um but I, I don't really know what else you can do yeah i think well the first thing they need to do i think is work on getting these on magic online faster because that's why this mono white deck's just popping up is it got put on magic online months after the set came out and that's where most of the legacies played that's where most most parts of the format get figured out uh also and on Magic Online, these cards are obscenely expensive. That as well, and they'll keep they'll drop in price and they'll keep coming out. Um, same thing happened with Kappa Cannoneer, and that's the thing. Like, part of me wants to be like they shouldn't put it in Legacy. I'm cool with Vintage Heaven everything because it's vintage. You get to cast Ancestral Recall and Tinker. You should be able to play everything. If it gets too good, restricted to one, but you should be able to play everything. Um, but. I've liked a lot of the cards that came from the commander set, and I think they're really interesting in legacy. Like I think like Kappa Cannoneer is a great example. It made a whole new archetype a lot better. Not a whole new archetype, but it made it made an archetype a real thing. And it's really good. And then everyone freaked out and said, You we can't beat this deck. And then they started putting meltdown on their sideboards and then they they became a worse deck, and they they solved it. Uh, I just don't know how you solve this mono white deck. The issue is you can't answer the initiative once it happens. Like well, it doesn't stop happening. Well, I mean you can attack them. Like that's what you can do. You can steal the steal the initiative. I, but, I mean I wouldn't be surprised if they did the same thing they did with Popper and just ban the initiative cards. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think they will, but I also wouldn't be very surprised if they did. Those are not cards that were intended for 1v1 60-card formats, and they cause a lot of headaches and problems. Yeah. And I don't think we need to stop. Opposition Agent is another one. Uh, Hall Breacher is another one. I think all those cards are fine and cool, and they're on the appropriate power level. But something like initiative maybe is just a touch too strong. I don't know. Or everyone will just start playing elves, because I'm pretty sure elves has a pretty good matchup, like old school elves. Glimpse of Nature Elves, I think, has yeah. a good matchup against it, because they can attack around their guys and they have a faster clock. So maybe? They can also play blockers, and a lot of what makes the initiative good right now in vintage is usually they don't have blockers. Yeah, and same thing with Legacy, really. I mean, maybe they have a blocker, too, but they don't have attackers to steal the initiative is the big thing, unless you're playing something like Elves. So, But yeah, all the uh, results online. Uh, I jumped into Pioneer pretty much like the day after I played that tournament, so I haven't really went through and looked at any of the lists. Until mono, the Mono White deck gets solved, I probably won't be playing much Legacy anyways. Because you can't get ancient tombs for mana traders right now 
for any of the tournaments unless you're on their way early. And that's you play Ancient Tombs and Painter, but you also play them in Mono White. And it's obviously become a very scarce item on Magic Online. So I think that's all I want to talk about that. Uh, played a few Pioneer Leagues. Pioneer. Play, play, play in the deck I enjoy. Yeah, I've been playing Lotus Field. If you happen to see me at RCQ on January 14th, I am playing Lotus Field uh, simply because I own it in paper, and I think it's pretty good. I bought the Challenger deck, which gives you like 90% of it. You still have to get some expensive cards like the Sages and Ottawaras, but besides that, you're pretty set with the bulk of stuff there. So I'm, uh, I like the deck. It's challenging. Honestly, I just like playing a combo deck and when there's not three counter spells. That is pretty sweet. Uh, so, do you have any plans of playing more Magic this week, or are we just waiting for Vintage Cube to come out? I'm definitely going to be playing some Vintage Cube. Vintage Cube is always where it's at. Uh, this week, I have a bunch of dinners planned. I got a dinner with my dad plan this weekend uh christmas dinner with the uh owner of the store i work for on thursday friday i'll be at work the entire day you know fnm and all that good stuff so probably not a ton oh adulting it sucks it is not fun it does uh put a kink in my game time that's for sure yeah I feel like the holiday season is making everything move so fast. We're like halfway through December. We're almost 10 days away from Christmas. Yeah. It's going by crazy fast. But I guess we can jump into the meat and potatoes of this episode. As I'm a Midwest. meat and potatoes kind of guy. Hey, that's what we say in the Midwest. That's how we do it. Um, today, we're going to be talking about some articles that came out a long time ago uh, in the 2008 to 2011 period. I'd have to actually look at them. Let me pull them up. I am very unprepared, as always. It happens sometimes. Uh, this one was 2011. 2012. And the other one was right around then as well. Yeah, they were all the late 2000s. Yeah. 2010s. It, um, so I read, there's some articles I couldn't find anymore. So we're talking about levels of thinking. Levels of thinking became a thing originally from poker. Um, if you play a decent amount of poker and you're involved with the poker world, a lot of this will be really familiar to you. David Slansky wrote about it in one of his poker books. I don't remember which one. Um, Theory of Poker, something like that. Um, but it just... It all kind of sounds really basic once you talk about it, but there's a lot to it. Um, let's... I guess we'll start off by talking about what the levels of thinking are. I got them pulled up right here. So when you're playing any game, not just magic, but any game, it essentially starts off with a level zero is what do I have? What cards do I have in my hand? 
what can I do? Uh, a level one lever, level one of thinking is what can my opponent have? And then level two is what does my opponent think I have? And level three is what does my opponent think I think he has? And level four is what does my opponent think that I think that I think that he thinks that I have? That was a lot to say, and I'm pretty sure I messed it up. <laughs> and it goes so on and so forth. Uh, levels of thinking A is what I think um, watching very high-level magic play is so interesting because they're thinking levels beyond where I'm thinking, and uh, it causes all sorts of different reasoning for their choices. So most players, when they start out, start off with just a level zero. What do I have in my hand? What can my cards do? You know, I have creatures. I'm going to play all my creatures, and I'm going to try to kill my opponent. And then my opponent plays Supreme Verdict, and I'm sad. You know, if you're a level one thinker, maybe you play two creatures, three creatures, and you have them on a three-turn clock, and you go, I'm going to force them to Supreme Verdict, and then I could replay more cards. So level zero, level one is where most... Level zero to level two, I guess is where most FNM players would play. Zero to two. Do you agree? I'm in total agreement. That is exactly where you start. Um, the interesting part about all these levels is if Josh is a level two thinker, and he goes, what does my opponent think I have? And I'm a level zero thinker, and I just play my cards, and I don't give any thought to what my opponent has. Uh, I actually have an advantage there. In this weird game of you just want to be one level above your opponent, being more than one level above your opponent's a hindrance? Um, well, it's only a hindrance if you can't adjust yourself. For sure. There's, there's also, like, no one's a true level... Okay, there's some people that are true level zero players, but even at the casual commander game, you've seen, you know the very new, or just the not good player, very casual player, look at someone and be like, I know you have a day of judgment in your hand. You know, I'm not going to play that, or I think you have a counter spell. Yeah, I mean, so it's not a constant state of mind, first off. It's uh, a varied, it, it ranges back and forth. And being able to identify where your opponent plays is very important. And well, how how would you identify where your opponents are? Um, that's a good question. There's a lot that goes into this, and you're making assumptions, and it can be really dangerous. Um, so let's say I sit across from someone, and we were playing, uh, Legacy. I'll use a format as an example. And I know they're a good player. So I'm on the play, and I'm going to play Island, and I'm going to represent some sort of counter spell. And if they're playing some all-in combo deck, they might not have the ability to worry about what I have. They might just be like, I have a turn one kill if they don't have anything. Let's see if this works. And sometimes that's correct. That gets more into like game theory optimal GTO stuff. Um, but ways I identify 
what level my opponent thinks of is usually just their play patterns. The more you watch them play and every, you know, why are they making these decisions as a player just playing out his hand? You know, are you on a three turn clock already, but your opponent plays up another creature that doesn't change the clock at all? Uh, that might mean they're a level zero. Um, do they wait for you to tap out? If you have by playing a blue deck, do they wait to play? Uh, do they play around your cards a little bit or try to at least? Maybe they're a level one thinker. So I don't know. How do you how do you determine? You ask the question. I'll make you answer it now. Well, um, there's a lot of things that I would look for in what you would call a level zero player. Uh, for one, uh, somebody who doesn't think through their plays. Uh, that's always a big indicator to me that they're on a, a lower level of thinking than I am usually. Not always, because mind you, your your level <laughs> can be affected by your tiredness, your uh, your energy level, your uh, familiarity with uh, the format or the uh, the opponent. Uh, but normally, if they don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about their plays, uh, I usually write off that they aren't really thinking much past what they're doing. Uh, and I think that's a fairly fair and um, safe ass uh, assumption. Even the best players in the world are still going to have to think about their plays and also their opponent's plays. If they're not taking any time at all, you just simply don't have the brain power to process that unless you're a supercomputer. I think that's one of the biggest ones. Uh, there's some other small things to uh, take into consideration too. Um, if you know the if your opponent's playing the uh, quote best deck, uh, usually it means they probably didn't put too much thought into that deck. Now that can get you into trouble sometimes, uh, but a lot of the time people playing those decks are just net decking what they were told is the best deck, and they're going to shuffle it up and they're going to go play the best deck. I disagree with that. I think, I think you at least think on a level one or two. If you get to the point where you're like, you know, playing at an F and M and you're net decking the best deck, usually you've been playing long enough <laughs> that you're not going to just look at your hand and go, "What does my hand do?" You're going to have a little bit more experience of that, in my opinion. I mean, it's not always the case, but I don't think so. Uh, I I see way too many times people bring in. Um their deck and now they may know their deck quite well they may know all the little intricacies and combos that they can pull off with their deck uh they may also have a general idea of what the other decks they could have played are because they would have looked at other decks that they could have played um but they're not going to have the same recognition uh as somebody who is a higher level would have if your opponent leads off in vintage on a forest that only means a couple of things but somebody who's just net decking their doomsday deck may have no idea what that means in vintage if you're leading off with a forest there's a limited amount of decks that are going to do that and generally speaking that's going to be uh some sort of uh oath deck usually or some sort of uh hate bears deck or elves Elves is a it, deck it could now. it could be elves as well, but there's a limited number of decks. Like not very many decks run basic forest, and I would I would wager a lot that somebody who just grabs a random deck and would normally be a level zero player uh, isn't going to know that when they sit down. And and I can tell that uh, 
a lot of the times by them playing a stock list. Somebody who plays a stock list is trying to piggyback off of everyone else's success with that deck. And that usually, to me, indicates a lower level. Maybe not necessarily straight level zero. You know, they're going to be thinking a little about what you have, but I, I do put them at a lower spot. That's fair. I uh, Other things, I guess, to look for as well. Um, when you're... First off, if you just know the player... You know, I just talk to him. When I sit down, if I go to an FNM, you know, I ask him, I'm a pretty chatty guy. So, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, this year, you know, if I'm at a different store, I'll ask him if that's where they usually play. And I usually bring up how long you've been playing Magic for. And it's a slight edge because usually they're like, oh, I've been playing for six years. I play FNM every week here. So then I assume they have their a slightly, you know, they might think on. A slightly higher level they might play around my cards a little bit more um or if they're like i've been playing for a month it's like well they're probably just going to look at their hand and see what those cards do and go from there again though when you start making assumptions like this like you have to be able to change at any given point because but that's what this is, is about is making assumptions because you need to make the correct assumption for this to work in your favor yeah and you have to be, you have to make an assumption and then be willing to change it um, Magic's changed a lot since these articles were written as well. And you and I have talked about this before off air. A lot of the times, it's correct just to jam a card and be like, force your opponent to have the answer. You bet. And not play around the things. Um, well, like is- I was saying to you off air, sometimes jamming something, knowing that it's going to get countered or get destroyed or get killed or whatever, uh, is a good thing for you because you dictate your opponent's play. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, things like mana efficiency. And um, I was playing, um, I was playing against Blue White Control. I was playing Lotus Field. And I played, I didn't play around any other counter spells. A, because in the main deck of Lotus Field, I. I did around there. I have no way to counter play their counter spells. Um, and so I just played cards. Until they didn't have counter spells anymore, I just played straight level zero. Here's a card. Do you have an answer for it? Okay. Here's a card. Do you have an answer for it? Okay. And then eventually one of them resolved, and I won the game. Um, I think you were watching that game. It was the first game I played with the deck. Yep. And there was actually a lot of meta gaming going on in that game. Different levels. Uh, I seem to recall calling out exactly what the opponent was going to do when he left up four mana. I mean, it was very obvious that he wanted to wandering emperor at the end of our turn and we played a spell into that turn and he couldn't wandering emperor the next turn we didn't have a spell to play and guess what he did he wandering emperor so we dictated a turn by guessing correctly at what he wanted to do yeah and it gets a little bit more so the next level up from that so is if uh this comes up when i'm playing grease fang if uh, a blue white control deck has four mana up, two of it being white, I won't tap my Grease Fang to crew my a vehicle unless I absolutely have to because I'm worried about getting Wandering Emperor. Um, also, when I was playing the Soldier deck in Standard at the Standard Challenge two weeks ago, uh, there's the new 
two one that destroys an artifact or enchantment. Uh, the legendary creature, I don't remember its name. It's from Brothers War. But it also has Vigilance. And so I just put every buff on that guy because my opponent constantly held up four mana and their mono-white mid-range deck. And they couldn't do anything effective with the Wandering Remper in their hand. And we're talking in the chat after the game, and he just straight up said I, I had a hard time answering that card. I, you know, Wandering Emperor is my kind of pseudo-best removal spell. I'd use my other removal spells on your other cards, and I couldn't answer it. So... Another good example of that is uh, I was watching Thraben Yu playing a um, a black deck that was going to uh, ritual out things like Opposition Agent and uh, Regisaur, uh, and it had a uh, a Painter Serpent combo in the deck as well with Leyline and Helm and whatnot in there too. Uh, and he was playing against a Reanimator deck, and after game one, uh, he was going to board out all of his Rotting Regisaurs because he said, well... If I'm going to nuke his graveyard so hard that he can't play, the only thing that he could do is play something out of my graveyard. Well, he kept in one Rotting Registor, and sure enough, he got that reg Rotting Registor unmasked from his hand and then had to deal with his Rotting Registor being reanimated. So if he had gone all the way with that plan, it would have worked beautifully because there would have been nothing for his opponent to reanimate. So sometimes you can do this even in sideboard uh how uh, how is my opponent going to win uh, you know that's a question that uh, a level one or two player is going to ask how is my opponent going to win and can i do anything about that right um i was just scrolling through this so how do you level up what your level of thinking is. And well, I feel like a lot of players, when they're new to this, they immediately try to be like a level eight player and yep. uh, just go nuts with it. And obviously that's not correct. And they overstress themselves. Experience. So, that's how. You, you do this through experience. Experience and thinking. Specifically, thinking about how your game went when a game finishes and what you could have done differently, uh, what your opponent played and on which turns, what you could have played to counter or respond to that. Um, you're you're going to analyze your games. So you're going to start off as a level zero, and the first step will be learn your deck. Learn how to play all your cards, learn what they do, learn all the weird gimmicks and tricks that can come into them, like you know playing a Blood Moon to kill an Urza Saga, etc. Uh, that's the first step. Then the second step is play. Play, win, lose. But after each game, don't just assume that because you won, you played it perfectly. After that game, stop and think. I, I, I just raw-dogged uh, Blood Moon into my opponent's counterspell deck on turn two or three. Had he had a counterspell, would I have been able to win that game? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. And if the answer is not, then you got to go back and go... What could I have done differently? Is there a way that I win that game while being safer with my Blood Moon? What, what did my opponent want to do? That'll get you to the next level. After that, you have to take it one step further. Then you have to start thinking about how do I convince my opponent that I have cards that I don't have or um, cards you know that you do have in your deck that you know your opponent needs to play around? How do I make my opponent play around the cards that he thinks that I have? And you just keep going up that ladder. Yeah, and I think that's when it gets very intricate, is when you start 
bluffing cards. When you intentionally don't play cards on your turn, uh, especially uh, like Wandering Emperor is a great example. You know, maybe you have some sort of Planeswalker in whatever format you can play in your main phase, but if your opponent um, attacks with their hasty Primeval Titan from Amulet Titan, you lose, and so you leave up open mana to represent Counterspell, and maybe they... I guess that's a bad example, because I'm pretty sure it gives it Vigilance. But anyways, um, it changes your opponent's play, but it's risky, because if your opponent just doesn't care what you have you have to uh they'll just play into it and if you don't have anything then you don't have anything and you can get this happens a lot of magic online um i do it as well where someone goes to play something and i tap my island and then i untap my island and then i let it resolve and then that forces my opponent to play around some sort of counter spell for the next couple turns, as long as I have mana up. Um, and there's, yeah, this is very intricate. I think the easiest way to approach it is mulliganing, I think is a really good way to look at this. So you look at your opening seven hand, and everyone does this, or should do this to some extent. You know, The first question you have is, what do I have? How do these cards work together? Do I have lands and spells? Okay, so the next level is okay. I have lands and spells. Do these lands and spells beat what my opponent has, especially in post board games, and then so on and so forth? I think that's a. Do you agree? Is that a good representation of the levels of thinking? And uh, I I I agree. Uh, And I want to give an example of of a high level play. Uh, This would be you know, level three or level four type thinking. Um, it's a pretty well-known play. Uh, it was Louis Scott Vargas uh, versus Jeremy Dezani. And uh, they were playing a game, and LSB was playing a, uh, a Boros weenie deck of uh, vampires, and he had an Adanto port. It's the, uh, the flipped card that you can pay two and a white and tap and create a vampire token. Mm-hmm. And his opponent was, uh, it was on his turn, and he went, he, he separated his lands along with the Adanto hold and went to make a vampire token. And then thought about it, looked at his hand, looked at his opponent's board, looked at his hand, and said, now nah, I'll pass the turn. Clearly giving the indication that he wants to make a vampire token, but he's going to do it at instant speed just in case there's any tricks so that he can get that blocker in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his opponent looked did the math added in the one extra blocker that uh he was going to make even though he hadn't made it yet and realized that if he swung with everything even with that one blocker he was going to win so he played out his cards he swung with his team and lsb didn't make a vampire he cast settled the wreckage and won the game handily on his turn uh he didn't win the game on his turn. His opponent conceded. Well, yes. Uh, you should watch the video. And the, the other part that you missed is LSV grabs his pen. So this gets into angle shooting. Ah, yes, and, yes. And LSV... Because this is about what he attacks with. LSV grabs his pen, reaches over to his pad of paper, and it looks at his opponent. And I don't know if he says something there or not. I don't quite remember. Uh, it's on... 
It's on he, YouTube. He mumbled it's, something, but I don't know yeah. if it was to his opponent or not. Yeah, yeah. And that it made his opponent uh, swing with everything. And he looked, LSB practically jumps out of his chair to yep. settle the wreckage. And his opponent just drops his hand, shakes his hand, says, good game. Yeah, um, well, it, it was game. Yeah, yeah. I think I think L, uh, LSB had lethal, like on the crackback. Well, he um, did because he had the history of Benalia and the, uh, and the well, I guess technically he was going to put him to one. I don't quite remember the situation. I do remember watching that play, and that is very, very high-level thinking, and uh, that gets into a whole lot of other things. That's a lot well, of posturing. Yeah. You know? Um, also, it's important to note that if his opponent was not playing on a higher level, he wouldn't have fallen for that. If your opponent isn't thinking that, you know, about what you can and can't do, isn't caring about you reaching over for your life total, uh, isn't caring about any of that, it's not going to work. And that's the importance of playing one level above your opponent. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple other really good examples of the same kind of thing. And when you get into, like, angle shooting, there's a whole lot of small... In a lot of these, these aren't major edges. You hit a point of playing magic, especially like at the FNM level. Uh, you start winning a couple FNMs here and there, and you feel good. You're like, I'm a good magic player. And then A, you either start playing tournaments of magic online, you start going to bigger tournaments, 1Ks, 5Ks, RCQs, and you lose a lot. And you're like, "What's? I thought I was a good magic player. And it's a lot of it comes, these are small edges. Some of these are bigger edges than others, but a lot of this is smaller edges. But that's a, a lot of smaller edges is what makes you better at magic in the long run. You know, you start out by taking these big leaps and bounds and learning as a player, and then you start that slows down the more you play. You learn your edges and your little you take little little steps forward. It's little things like you know, if you're playing a deck that plays lightning bolt, like leaving one Ren Men up to represent a removal spell when you could have tapped that to uh, land and left another land untapped. You know, um, when you don't have anything else to play there, you know, what can I represent? How can I tape my, tap my lands to tell a story? Um, and will my opponent read the story? Is my opponent thinking that high? Does my opponent think I'm bluffing them? Um, I've just, done this online many times as well. You you can tap your lands down to make a play quickly, and then untap your lands and leave different lands untapped. So if you have say two blue sources and you tap one to play a spell but don't actually play it, and then you untap all your lands and leave two blue sources open and play your spell, your opponent is probably thinking you have a counter spell. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of little things here, like I was saying, that makes this happen. Um, I guess we can move on to the Ulamog's Gambit, if sure. you want. Um, so the Ulamog's Gambit, and this article is written by Craig Wesco. Craig Wesco wrote, a, when I first learned about this, uh, I was just getting into playing poker at the time as well. And it really kind of opened my eyes because all of us subconsciously play on some sort of level. And once you can realize what level you're playing at compared to your opponent and how it can go from there, um, it 
it really changes it. It was a really big moment for me and my my gaming career. I don't even say like my magic playing, um, but just playing games in general. Uh, if you've played a lot of poker, I've played. I've probably played more, just as much poker, if not more poker, than I have magic hours wise. Um, and this comes up quite a bit there because you can't. You know, they say you can't bluff a fish. You know, if your opponent doesn't care what you have, you can't bluff them. They'll go, I have I have a pair. I will call you, you know. Um, so anyways, Craig Wesco originally wrote the articles. Sadly, I can't find them online. I think they disappeared. Um, and I'd also want to bring up, this time in Magic was the golden age, in my opinion. Not to down every, anyone that writes articles now. But they're not, they're not 12 to 15 minute reads. Everything's moved to YouTube and uh, audio podcasts. Um, it's easier. Like, I'm Aspiring Spike is an amazing player. He's an amazing content creator. But if you look at any of his articles on Channel Fireball, they're a couple paragraphs with a video. And. Hey, that bums me out mostly because I can't watch videos at work, but I can read articles while I'm at work. So it makes me sad. But if you're if you're newer to ma- magic, you want to learn more of this kind of things. I would encourage you just to look up old articles. Anything that has to do with the, you know, any kind of game theory, even if it's five, ten, fifteen years old, it still applies to today. So, anyways, Craig Wesco uh, wrote this back. Uh, 2012-ish, I think. So, I'll read it off. It says, We are opponents. Neither of us have any cards in hand, and the only cards on the battlefield, other than basic lands, is your Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger. So, Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger, uh, it's indestructible, it's a 10-10, and it says, Whenever it attacks, the defending player exiles the top 20 cards of their library. That's the relevant part. It says, We both know I have... I exactly 26 cards in my library because we counted last turn when you played Ulamog. I'm at 20 life and you are at 7. You know for certain that the only relevant card in either of our libraries is a lethal lethal rolling thunder, which is just a fireball. Um, I draw and I play Fertile Thicket, which is a come into play tapped land, and I can look at the top 5 and put them on the bottom of any order. So, looking at the top five cards in my library, I rearrange them and put all of them on the bottom of my library, leaving with 25 cards total remaining. You untap and draw a basic land. Do you attack with Ulamog? Why or why not? If not, how many draw stops do you give me before attacking with Ulamog and why? So, Josh and I have, I don't want to say figured this out, but I do believe there's a correct answer to this. Before we get into this, let's apply the levels to it. So, if my opponent is a level 0 or level 1 thinker, and they hit Rolling Thunder, they would put Rolling Thunder as the top card of the 5. Well, they they would do that if they were a level 0 thinker. Well, yeah. Not if they were a level 1 thinker. Fair. And then, so a level one thinker might put it one down from there. Correct. And uh, then... 
but let's and, let's let's walk through these at first. So you're you're dead on on that. So if you're a level zero thinker, then uh, let's reiterate what a level zero thinker is thinking about. He's thinking about his cards only, correct? Yeah, his cards only, and roughly what's on the board. Like they're not completed. Yeah. Like obviously, right. the logs on the board. He understands the top twenty cards of his library is going to disappear. But a level zero thinker is not thinking about um, the top twenty cards of his library disappearing. He's thinking about I can end this game with Rolling Thunder, and so he's going to put it as the first card that he would draw after you attack next turn because you're clearly going to attack next turn to a level zero thinker why wouldn't you right um now a level one thinker that's the next step up yeah a level one thinker would put it one down so if you attack them they um or if you don't attack them, they assume you're not going to attack. You're going to wait a turn. They draw a card, you attack them, then they untap and they kill you. Correct. Um, no. A level two thinker is going to know that you would have thought of that. So they're going to go ahead and put it as the top card. Because knowing that you thought of that, you're definitely going to attack them the next turn. Because if it's two cards down, then you win. Right. Um, And it goes on, like everything from level two just gets very, I guess, confusing. I don't want to say confusing, but very convoluted. Because you're assuming your opponent's assuming things about you and what they're going to do. Uh, so what, what does a level three thinker do in that situation? Well, a level three is going to be uh, somebody who has thought about the fact that if you attack them, you're going to mill 20 cards. and so. A level one thinker would put it two cards down. A level three thinker, or I'm sorry, a level two thinker would have uh, realized that and then, of course, put it at one because he assumes you're not going to attack. A level three thinker knows that you're aware that he's capable of making that play, so they would put it two down because you would skip your attack. It keeps going back and forth. It's about how much you expect your opponent to know. So a level zero and a level two thinker are going to place the cards in the same spot a level one and a level three are often going to place the cards in the same spot right um a really good example of this which is in uh uh chris mascoli apologize if i mispronounce that name uh he wrote an article back in 2011 called leveled thinking that talks about this and in it have you seen the princess bride before oh yeah Okay. That one and of the greatest it, movies of all time. It is. If you, okay, if you guys haven't seen The Princess Bride, do yourself a favor. Pause the episode. Uh, make sure you give us a review and comment, if you can, on your platform before you do that. But pause it. Go watch The Princess Bride, and then come back, finish watching the episode. Listen to the episode. But it's anyways, got Andre the Giant in it. That's all you got to know. It's so good. It's so good. Um, so anyways, there's a moment in the movie, and... Uh, Chris uses this as an example in his article, and I think it's a really good way to put it, um, where there's two characters, and one, they have two cups of wine, and he says one has uh, poison it, one doesn't. And so he puts one cup in front of one guy, of you know the, the person, and the one cup in front of him, and says, which one do you want to drink from? You know, So a level zero thinker will be like, um, he'll say that you know, my cup has the poison, you, uh, uh, a level zero thinker is going to say that. Uh, are you saying level cups. zero thinker from the guy who placing the cups or the guy picking the cups? Picking the cups would say okay. that the cup in front of him 
has the poison. Then if, if if you're in the spot to choose. So then a level one thinker would be like, no, 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 my my opponent's too good for that. He would put it in front of him. And then a, a level two thinker would go, no, my opponent would think that I would think that, so clearly it's in front of me. So it just goes every other one, like you were saying before. And he writes it all out and has a little chart. Here, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Um, so I just think that's a really good example of leveled thinking. Uh, so you guys can read that um, the Ulamog's Gambit and make your own decision. Uh, Josh and I attack, and it has very little to do with leveled thinking. It has a lot to do with the math behind it. Um, because I'll let you explain it. You, When we talked about this earlier on the phone, you put it extremely well. So I'm just going to let you explain why you would attack first. So I would attack. And the reason I would attack is because if... Assuming that all this information is is known, and remember, in a normal magic game it wouldn't be, but this is a, a simulated game. Um, my opponent has 25 cards in his deck. So uh, he has approximately a 4% chance to draw that Rolling Thunder. He doesn't draw the Rolling Thunder. Uh, with those 25 left in his deck, he draws a Fertile Thicket instead. So when he plays that Fertile Thicket, he's going to have 5 looks to find a Rolling Thunder. That's 20%-ish odds of seeing that rolling thunder actually um, the, the, in the example it starts with 26 card it goes 25 right because yeah because he draws his spurtle thicket correct so yeah it's exactly 20 um, percent to see it which means that he 80 percent of the time he is not going to find the rolling thunder in those five cards and so the five that he puts on the bottom are completely irrelevant and so 80 percent of the time if i attack i'm going to win and it doesn't matter what my opponent did because the rolling thunder will for sure be in those other 20 cards correct and so that's my thinking on that it takes my opponent completely out of the equation um it's not the greatest for the leveled uh thinking response because i'm not using level thinking for that i'm using math yeah gto as the poker players would say uh game theory optimal that's a whole yep. other thing to get into um and the other thing you brought up earlier is you know you have two choices attack or don't attack yep and uh there's two different situations where you attack and your opponent um where you attack and it's the correct decision you win and there's only one situation where you don't attack and it's correct, correct. and in theory even in this example you can make the quote-unquote wrong choice and still win the game you know if the rolling thunder seven cards down eight cards down in the deck it doesn't matter it's going to get milled yep whether you attack this turn or attack the next turn um so it's and it, they asked like a bunch of pro players um they like uh, Huey Jensen, who actually runs the like pro tour now, and works for Wizards. Um, LSV, John Finkel. Um, John Finkel's response is the best. Uh, he said, I would skip one attack against most opponents, but I would skip two against you, uh, Craig, which I think is funny. Um, so yeah, there's and there's things that can trigger your opponent's response. Some people have really bad poker places. Um, and so if if they do something that makes you think that it wasn't there, if they stop and think about it for a while, if they do it very quickly, um, 
a lot of that can change what your decision would be in a lot of situations as well. So this isn't on the surface. I think leveled thinking seems very, very, very cut and dry, but it's not at all. Um, there's a lot of small things that can contribute to um, what it can be. And there's, you know, I, uh, you know, draw a card, you know, you were playing a game and I draw a card and I seem really happy. You know, do I seem really happy because I drew the answer I needed for your creature or planeswalker or whatever? Or do I seem really happy because I want you to think I drew the answer or I drew the, you think I drew the counter spell or whatever? Um, yeah, this is, there's a lot to digest with this. I feel like we could give a bajillion examples. Do you have any more examples you want to go over? Oh, for sure. I, I, I mean, I do this all the time, uh, when I'm playing games. Uh, one of the things that, uh, I like to do a lot is I'll draw my card, look at my hand and I'll set my hand off to the side set it off by my deck or off to the you know side of the game board um and then i'll play the rest of my turn and i'll keep my hand there uh i won't touch it it'll it'll stay there and that often gives the impression to a lower level thinker that i have nothing to do because if i had something to do i'd be holding those cards ready to use them right so they're off to the side and my opponent will make a a very obvious play to which I have the answer for sitting right off to the side of the game board there. And then I pick my hand up, make my play. Um, I do this against players that I know realize that I know my hand is there for the opposite effect. If somebody has seen me do this once or twice, you know, I'm playing against Brendan and he's like, Oh, I know your tricks. You're setting your hand over there because you clearly have a, a doom blade in your hand to kill my guy. I'm not going to play it. Like, Oh, guess you got me. There's no doom blade in my hand, but <laughs> So it, right. it's all about knowing your opponent and knowing how they're going to play. Another example um, is the land tapping. I, I very often will move my lands around in a way that makes it obvious what I'm going to do. And against a lower level player, that usually means that I don't have whatever it is I'm indicating. And against a higher level player, it usually indicates that I do have what I'm indicating. Um, and I change up what I'm bluffing or not bluffing based on how good or um, what level of thinking I think my opponent is playing on. And sometimes I'm wrong and my opponent games me because they were thinking on a higher level, but those are examples of some of the things that I do. Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, and if you watch... So first off, if you want to see and hear higher level thinking... Uh, whenever Reed Duke streams like a legacy challenge or something like that, uh, Reed Duke's really good at talking through his plays and explaining them and just in general what his whole thought process is. And, and he's also one of the best players of all time. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, the guy's in the Hall of Fame for a reason. So, I would highly suggest just go watch his stream for a while. It's pretty fun. Uh, he interacts with chat uh, pretty well and not maybe not during the game, you know, don't spam with a bunch of questions. But he'll walk his, you know, he'll talk his decisions through and explain why he's thinking what he's thinking. Um, so I'd recommend to check that out on Twitch. Another interesting thing is let's say you're playing against an opponent who constantly outgames you, they constantly outlevel you. 
you actually have two options of what you can do here. You know, the obvious option is you try to outlevel them, but maybe you're just not a strong enough player to do that yet. You're not experienced enough, you know? So let's say I usually play it like a level one thinking um, or a level two, a level two thinking. And my opponent constantly outgames me. Just drop to like a level one play. Or better yet, a lot of times, you know, if it's, you know, a level, instead of playing on a level one, you know, drop to a level zero if your opponent's playing on a level two. And make make them hurt themselves, you know, because the outcome's the same. The odd numbers and the even numbers all work in the same have the same choice usually so there's so much to get into and i feel like you could do like a whole series of episodes and all this stuff and this leads into a whole lot of other things you know like uh, like i said before like game theory optimal like making just the mathematically correct decision you know they're you know, instead of playing around a counter spell they're you know only x percentage likely to have it so you just jam even though you know in magic maybe you have a read that they do have counterspell. Um, yeah, there's just a bunch of stuff to get into here. And if you guys want to hear more of this kind of stuff, Josh and I, this kind of stuff's how this podcast started. Josh and I uh, started talking on the phone pretty much every day, every other day. And we just have conversations about these things. You know, we'd be in a certain situation, I'd be in a certain situation in a game and I'd make a play and I'd just ask his opinion on it. And or we get together, or we stream over Discord, and we talk about our plays and see other perspectives. And so this is stuff we really, really enjoy talking about. But it's not for everyone. So if this is stuff, if you want to hear of more of this kind of thing, please, you know, email us at tofa Twitter or at tfoa tofa podcast at gmail.com. I really messed that podcast. TOFA podcast. Yeah, I said that right. Um, so yeah. Anything else you want to add on this? Just remember that you're not a particular level. Nobody is. You're not a level zero. You're not a level one. You're not a level two. This is a fluid thing. And the better you get at the game, the more adjustable you can make your level of thinking to appropriately play the game that you're playing. Uh, also, don't assume that just because somebody is a level zero player that you're going to win. Um, if they are playing you, they may be playing as a level zero player with the ability to switch that up at any time. Use this as a way to improve your own game. Use this as a way to think about the games that you've both won and lost. It's important to think about the games that you won, too, because a lot you can often learn more in the games that you won from plays that your opponent could have made to win the game to things that you could have done differently to be safer. Uh, that's what this is really about is improving your overall game. Yeah. And it's not, and you only have to be one level better than the guy playing across from you. You know, when a lot of people, when they get into some sort of competitive realm, they want to be like, I want to think on like a level 10 or 12 or 15 or whatever. And it's all irrelevant. You know, you just need to identify where your opponent is adjust accordingly. Um, and 
when you watch these matches, uh, that's why, like, you know, in Worlds, you might, if you watched Worlds, and it was on Arena, you could see both players' hands, and there would be a quote-unquote very obvious play to make, and it's really easy to see an obvious play when you can see both players' hands, um, but they just think, and they rope a lot when they play high-level Magic on Arena, because they're thinking through every scenario and trying to figure out where their opponent is and adjust accordingly. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is good stuff. This is um, it gets like down I, into a chess level of you know depth. Yeah, I'm not a great chess player, and I've won chess games just by uh, people assuming because I play other strategy games that I'm a decent chess player. Um, and I'm not. I do enjoy watching chess. There's a lot of drama in the chess world right now that I follow through Reddit and Twitter and whatnot. But I've just beat them because I just play very, very straightforward. And they would assume I was up to something and play very cautiously. And I, and I wasn't. I was just moving my pieces, trying to get their king and checkmate. You know, very just straightforward chess. And I've won a couple games. I beat my brother like that. I'll never let him live it down. I'll never play chess against him again because I'm one to know against him. Well, uh, we're going to have to play some chess soon then. No, no, I'm not a good chess player, man. Well, not that's, a... that's, it's for my ego so I can crush you. Yeah. Yeah. After that, after that, we'll go to the elementary school and lunch and we'll play magic cards. Uh, yeah. And I can beat up some little kids too. Like, yeah. I, that's, that's what we're talking about. Heck Yeah. That's high level playing right there. Um, another thing, like I mean, you kind of talked about it before, but like the leveled thinking is also why you lose to bad players, quote unquote bad players. And we've all been there. You know, I, I lost to so and so, and you know he made this awful play because he didn't play around X. You know, if I would have had, I would have blown him out. But you know, he just didn't play around it like he should have. He made an awful play. Well, if, if he's just a level zero player, he's never going to play around it. He's always just going to play his cards. And yep. you need to be able to recognize that and adjust accordingly. And there's other players, and sometimes the, the quote-unquote bad players are players that don't have results. You know, um, I could do a whole episode on why do you play Magic, because everyone kind of plays Magic for different reasons. And a lot of people don't play Magic to win, necessarily. They like winning, but they want to do some cool thing with their deck. You know, so you might have a guy, um, there's a guy, our local store that plays with, and he doesn't play the best decks. Um, and I was playing against him, I was playing Storm, and he was playing a bad mono red burn deck. And uh, like he was playing Shock in Modern. Shock is not a modern playable card, folks. It is not. Sorry. But, and with my Storm deck, I need to have a Baral or uh, an Electromancer in play. And he constantly kept two cards in hand and one or two red mana open at all times. And it, like, it became really obvious he was doing this, even because there's turns he could have played two creatures and he didn't. And he'd, he'd think about it. And... I had played with him a whole bunch, and he, he never won FNM. I assumed he wasn't that great of a, a player necessarily. And then it got to the point where I was like, okay, I just have to try to combo off here, or I die next turn. Like, that's 
just the math that happens. I'm just dead to a lightning bolt next turn after he attacks me. And I played my Brawl. I comboed off. Grape shot at him in the face for 20. And he shows me two lands in his hand and goes, yeah, man, I just was trying to hold you off as long as I could. You know, so don't make any assumptions based on your opponent's results on where they're thinking. Because, again, you know, he, he has a lot of skill. He's a pretty good player. You know, he just likes to play his for fun, weird deck ideas, and that's why he enjoys playing Magic. So make sure you check out the show notes, uh, read these articles, and that is all I got for this week. Anything you want to go over, Josh? I think that's about it for me. Um, don't forget, like I said before, you can find us on Twitter, at TOFA Podcast. You can email us at TOFA podcast at gmail.com and make sure uh, share this with your friends subscribe like wherever you're following it and we will talk to you guys next week have a good one